The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning, church family. What a, what a blessing it is to my heart to be here with you. I've been worshiping online with you, but man, it, it certainly doesn't feel like that. Sitting in my house in Chicago the last three months waiting to finally get here in person, and we are, we are so blessed. I just want to say thank you on behalf of Kristen and Aria um, and myself. We have been so warmly welcomed into this place, and we are just, uh, we have felt the love of this church family from the moment we arrived uh, last week, and even before then, as so many of you have reached out and sent emails um, and just reach out in tangible ways to show your appreciation. We are so blessed. We are so thankful uh, for that and to be here. Um, thank you to Jonathan for, for flying out here. There's such a, such a dear friend and dear family that we will miss so much. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but this church has been so blessed over the years. And I knew that. And then I got to meet Dave and Lynette and spend time with them this weekend. And what a blessing they have been to this church. Amen. And thank you, Dave and Lennart, for coming, being so generous in your time. We so enjoyed being with you, and, and thank you for being here today. It means so much. So let me pray for us, and then we're going we're gonna to jump into God's word this morning. God, we, we do thank you that, that you lead us every step of the way and every step of our lives. God, and there, there may be seasons, there may be times where we don't know the path, we don't know the way, but God, you do. And you are a God who provides in such clear ways for your children and for your church. God, we are blessed. God, I am so blessed. I'm so thankful to be here to be a part of this church family. God, would you open, open our eyes, open our hearts now as we turn to your word. Would you speak to us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've been, uh, over the last month throughout June, I was able to set up pretty much regularly Zoom meetings with most of, actually I met with all of the staff, a lot of the, the staff here, I would meet with every single week. And I asked the same question to every staff person the first time that we kind of got on Zoom. Of course, I had met them before, but we kind of sat down and I said, tell me who you are. Just tell, tell me who you are. Right? And what happens if someone sits down and, and, and asks you, tell me who you really are? Well, you don't go, well, I am, um, I'm this height, I'm this weight, though I wish it was about 10 pounds lighter. Um, I was born on this day. Like, no, you don't, you don't give facts about your life. Those things matter to us, right? But if someone were to ask you who you are, what do you do? You start to tell stories, Right? You start to tell stories about your life, maybe important things as a child, maybe some formative moments. If you're married, you most likely tell the story of when you met your spouse. If you're a parent, you talk about your children entering into the world and that impact that had. If, if you've gone through a certain conflict that you've seen God lead you through, you go to those things. And those stories about our lives point to who we are. Right? And the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we believe about ourselves point to our identity and who we truly are. And it's the same with how the Bible tells us about who Jesus is. 
You won't find in the Bible this description of Jesus, like Jesus, hometown, his stats, right? Like this is, this is how old he was. This is how tall he was. This is how much you, we don't know that. But what the Bible does is to help us get to know who Jesus is, it tells us stories, not just so that we can be fascinated or entertained, but it tells us stories for a specific purpose that we would know the hearts of Jesus, that we would know who he truly is. And today we're going to look at, and actually for the next seven weeks, we're going to look at seven of these stories from the Gospel of John. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them this morning to John chapter 2. The text is also in the handout you hopefully received when you came in this morning. John chapter 2. And the Gospel of John, if you've, if you've read through the Gospels, which are those first four books of the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you're like, hey, these guys knew each other, right? Like, there's some stuff going on here. And then you read John, and you're like, okay. This guy's a little bit different, right? He takes a different angle. It's, it's still some overlap, but it's, it's such a unique look at Jesus. And one of the distinguishing things about the gospel of John is in the other gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they talk about the miracles that Jesus did, they talk about how they were miracles. The word comes from the word power, right? The powerful things that Jesus did. John doesn't use the word miracles, John records seven different episodes that we're going to look at for the next seven weeks, and John calls them signs. He says, these are signs. These are not just events of power. He says, but these are signs because contained in these stories, if you understand these seven things, he says, it will reveal something about the heart of our Savior. And so this story that we're going to look at today and what we're going to look at for the next several weeks is not just so we can be like, wow, Jesus was an impressive guy but so that they would captivate our hearts and reveal to us who Jesus truly is. And today, as we look at this story found in John chapter two, verse one, we're gonna see four characteristics of Jesus's work, four characteristics of his work here on this earth. John chapter two, verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, weddings are always a big family celebration, right? There are events that if you have a relative, you will fly across the country, maybe even around the world to celebrate the weddings with them. Weddings are always big in pretty much every cultural context. Well, weddings in this time were even a bigger community celebration than what we have in our Western world. And so a wedding would have been something that if you were in the community, you were there, right? Like those of you who have gotten married, you remember like you're agonizing over the guest list. You're like, do we want to invite that great aunt and uncle? I don't know. Maybe they'll give us something nice. You should invite them, right? Or, or do we want to invite that neighbor? We say hi to them, but we don't really. In, the, in this time, it was like, if you live in the community, you're coming. And everyone's taken off. It, it's a big celebration. The community, everyone is there. And so Jesus's mother is there. And then Jesus goes with his disciples. This is most likely the very first week, actually, of Jesus's ministry. So these disciples are very new disciples. One of the unique things about a wedding celebration during this time is nowadays, right? You get married and then you go on your honeymoon and you say like, peace out family. Like, don't call us, don't text us. If the house burns down, that's okay. Don't call us. Like, we don't want to hear from you till we're back in a week. Back then they got married and basically had an open house for a week. 
where everyone still came. It was a party. It was a celebration. They didn't get away, but everyone stayed. And it was a week of festivities, of joy, of celebration together. And so you thought your wedding was inconvenient or you know, that cousin's where you had to spend like five hours on a Saturday, right? This is a week long celebration together. And so this is the setting for this first miracle. Verse three, when the wine ran out. Now we're in wine country, so we all gasp, right? We're like, oh no, what an awful thing, right? And in this time, the social consequences of running out of wine were huge. They were huge. Um, in this setting, hospitality was the highest cultural value that they had. To be seen as a good host was everything. You had to be seen as a good host. And part of that was providing for the party. And so running out of wine would have brought great, great shame on the family, specifically the groom who was the one responsible for providing for the food and for the wine for that week. So much so that ancient studies have suggested, those who have studied this time period say that the, the groom potentially opens himself up to a lawsuit because he ran out of wine during the wedding. Imagine suing someone because the wedding food wasn't up to your standards, right? Like this is how serious the celebration is and how serious it is when the wine ran out. The party is over. It stopped. Everyone's like, oh my goodness, what an embarrassment for this guy. What has he done? The wine ran out. The mother of Jesus in verse three said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, as you may have guessed from how it reads in our English, this is not the normal customary, hey mom, how are you? So good to see you. To so junior hires and high school kids, I would not suggest putting this line back to your mom when she asks you to, to make your bed tomorrow or anything like that, right? This is, this is not like a, a, a soft, affectionate response. It does read a little harsher, in our language, and it would have been like that. This is not disrespectful, right? Jesus is not like dissing his mom, right? This is not disrespectful, but it is very formal, right? It's very, it's very formal language that, that he addresses to her. It's respectful, but it's certainly not warm and soft. And so this request comes to Jesus. She just says they have no wine. Now, this point, Mary may not be expecting a miracle, probably not, right? Because Joseph, Jesus's father, is not on the scene. So we can speculate at this point that Joseph has been gone. Jesus, being the eldest, has probably up to this point been the provider for Mary and for her family. And she's going to Jesus and saying, listen, you are the provider for our family. Look at this poor guy. Please just, just go and help him. Like run off to the village. Maybe, maybe she's like, we have some at home. Like just go, go, go save this guy. Please, he's, he's, this is a bad situation, Jesus. And he goes, woman... What does this have to do with me? Another phrase could be, what do you and I have in common? Is another way to, to translate this expression. And what, what he means by that is to be understood by this next phrase where he says, my hour has not yet come. Like Jesus, what are, you, what are you talking about? Your hour has not yet come. Well, Jesus's hour in the gospels and specifically in the book of John always are the hour being his death and resurrection from the dead. His death is the hour and the culmination that he is looking forward to. And this first characteristic of Jesus's work that we see in this response to his mother here is that Jesus lives a life of full obedience to his father, 
a full obedience to his father. See, it's fascinating. It's not just here in John 2, but in the gospels, every time, think of if you can, if you've read through the New Testament, every time Jesus and his mom interact in Jesus's ministry, he's kind of always putting a slight distance, not disrespectful, but he's, he's putting a distance between them. Remember when Jesus's mom and brothers come, like, Jesus, you're out of your mind. And he's like, whoever doesn't hate their mother and brother is not fit. And everyone's like, what? Like, what is he talking about? Like, Jesus is kind of always putting a little distance between them. This is not because of a lack of love, but it's a demonstration of where Jesus's loyalty lies. That by coming, Mary saying, do this, Jesus is saying, my true mission is to do the will of the father, my heavenly father, not the will of my earthly mother. He's saying, I live a life of full obedience to him. So I get this, Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, can you get more wine? In essence says, Jesus, well, it's not yet my time to die. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. But it's a reminder of this. This is the very first week of Jesus's public ministry. And it's a reminder us of this, that Jesus's mission, what he came to do was on his heart the whole time. Jesus came to not just to do some signs, to do some miracles, to provide for someone else, but the heart of Jesus's mission is seen when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's at the heart of what he came to do. At the very beginning, he's looking at the end right here at the very beginning. And his true loyalty and allegiance lies in doing the will of the father. That's why as Jesus was going to be crucified, he went aside and and said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, father, but yours be done. Not what I want, but submission to the father. See, Jesus's hour in the future on the cross would be the moment that his truest identity would be revealed. Jesus is saying here is, is, hey, if you only know one story that sums up who I am, it's not this story, it's the story that's to come. It's this hour in the future. That episode of Jesus dying on the cross, that's what truly defines him. See, Mary's motives here are good. She wanted to fix a problem, right? She wanted to rescue this groom from his shame. And Jesus says in answer, my mission is so much more than just helping this one person be delivered from their shame. See, the groom faced shame because of a lack of wine. Jesus says, I see humanity who is in shame because of the sin in their lives. And his his mind, his heart goes to what it will be for him to deliver us from the shame of sin in our lives. And he says here, I'm not just coming to, to, to solve one thing, but I'm coming to save humanity. This picture of Jesus turning water into wine is just a taste of what he can do through the cross and removing the shame of sin from our lives. So his response is distance, but but points to the future. But notice Mary's response in verse five. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he says. Verse six. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now there are no random details in the Bible. And oftentimes the things that we just skim over have significance and value to us. And this is the case in here by pointing out these jars that are here and what the jars function and purpose are for. So there are six big jars there. It says each holding 20 or 30 gallon, right? These aren't little milk jugs. These are massive jars. The purpose of which was for the Jewish rites of purification. 
Now, if you've ever read through the Old Testament before, you know that in the Jewish culture, everything hinges on being clean versus unclean, right? Cleanliness and uncleanliness is the culmination of all Jewish worship. And so these things were here, these jars were meant to, by washing yourself from the water from these jars, it one would be clean versus if it wasn't washed, you would be unclean. And so Jesus, to do this miracle, picks something that was for them. If they were going to kind of pick a picture of what Judaism was, of what their religion and following after Jesus was, it could be summarized in a jar, but an empty jar. And see, the second characteristic of Jesus's work that he brings is a total transformation, a total transformation. See, what Jesus is doing is this, the water in these jars, and these jars themselves represent the old order of Jewish law, Jewish custom, all that you had to do to get to God. Jesus is saying, now I'm replacing all of this that's come before with something far better than that. Jesus, by doing this action, by by using these jars, is declaring an end to the old covenant and the beginning of something new through him. See, this water was meant to make one ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean. And Jesus says, what you need to be clean before the Father will only now be found in me. Not in any physical thing, but I am the one who will make you clean before God. See, this lack of wine, the emptiness here in this story signifies the barrenness of all of these things that people were trying to do to get to God on their own. And Jesus comes in to the scene. He takes it and he says, I'm making a whole new way. I'm providing a brand new thing for you. See, Jesus didn't just show up on the scene and make little tweaks to what people were doing before. Jesus comes and he starts something brand new. He transforms it utterly. And that's what Jesus wants to do in our lives when Jesus shows up in our lives. He doesn't just want to tweak things. He wants to make us brand new. Second Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And by using these Jewish jars, Jesus is saying, I am bringing a new thing. Well, a few weeks ago, before I, I packed my car on a thing to ship it across the country, I realized I was well past due for an oil change. So I went down to the place where I had gotten it changed several times before, you know, and you go in thinking, all right, oil change, I'm going to spend like $50, $80, and I'm going to be out of here real quick, right? Yeah, that's what you think until you actually get in, right? And so, so I sat down, I got in, the guy comes in, all right, oil, that's great. And then the door opens, right? And if you've been at one of those oil changes, the door opens and everyone's like, please don't be my car, please don't be my car. Car, please do it. And the guy's like, Michael, I'm like, oh, okay, that's me. So I walk out and he, he shows me there's something wrong with my battery. There's like acid leaking out. It's hardly holding a charge. And I'm like, I'm not a, a mechanical guy. I don't know a lot about cars. I don't know if the battery doesn't work. That's bad. So we should replace it. Yes. Okay. Like go ahead. Right. And of course they tell you the price and you're like for a battery. Okay. All right. For the battery. Right. I, I, but go ahead and fi- fix the car. All right. So I go and I sit back down about 10 minutes later, another guy opens the door and I'm like, it's not me this time. It's like, Michael. I'm like, no, what now? <laughs> right. And he tells me, oh, your, your rotors are up. It's literally metal on metal. I'm like, I don't know a lot about cars, but I know if your brakes don't work, that's pretty bad. So I should get the brakes fixed. All right, we'll get the brakes fixed, right? And so it's, it's just fixing the things up. But when I left there, I left with a much larger bill than I thought when I was going in. But I left with the same car that I had before, right? Just some small tweaks to it. Sometimes we think when we come to Jesus, we're gonna come to him and be like, all right, Jesus, I just need you to like 
fix this little thing. My relationship's over here. This is kind of messed up. So would you just help me with this? And then I'm going to go on my merry way. Jesus, I got some issues with my children right now. God, can you help with this, with my family life? And then just let me go my, my way. God, I have some career. I have some decisions that I need to make. Would you just help me with this and let me go and do my own thing? We think that God's gonna show up and Jesus just wants to little fix the areas that we think we need to be fixed. And then we can do our thing. When Jesus shows up, he's like, no, I didn't come just to fix a little bit of your life. I came to give you a brand new life. The illustration isn't leaving me leaving with just some fixes to a car, but it would be a whole new thing. Jesus is saying, I don't, I don't wanna just tweak a little bit here and there. I wanna give you something brand new. Jesus has come to bring newness of life. He's come to bring total transformation, not just to tweak a little bit here and there on our hearts, on our lives, but to transform us totally. So these jars are taken. Verse seven, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. The third characteristic of what Jesus's work comes to do is it brings about abundant provision. Abundant provision. Now, the idea here that, that they, this, they would have understood in this time is that the wine was needed was not 120 to 150 gallons more. They may have drank a lot. That was an excessively large amount of wine. And so these water are filled to the brim. It's this idea of what Jesus is going to provide isn't like they're gonna be on the last day, the last bottle pour, be like, Whew. Jesus just barely got that amount, right? Because there was not any leftovers. They're gonna look at this and be like, what are we gonna do with all this great wine? Right? It, it is abundant, it is overflowing. It's so much more than what they would have had before, 100 to 150 gallons full. But see, what, what, what we need to understand as well as this is that this abundant provision that Jesus has is pointing to who he is. Because when you read through the Old Testament prophets, one of the signs, one of the things to look for with the Messiah is that in the time of the Messiah, wine would richly flow in the land. All throughout the prophets, over and over again, wine would, rich, would richly flow. In Amos chapter nine, one example of this, it says this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wines. They shall make gardens and eat fruit. I will plant them in their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God." By starting off Jesus's ministry with providing an abundance of wine, Jesus is looking back and saying, this points to me. This points to me, this overflow, this abundance of wine points to me and to my provision. Friends, has it hit you that we serve a God that ministers to us, that gives to us out of the abundance and overflow of his heart? Have you ever been stretched like super, super thin? Like, it's like, all right, if one more thing happens, if one more phone call, like, I just, I do not know if I can handle it, right? I, I want to do these things, but it, it, you just feel stretched. And I think a lot of us have felt that before. Some of you are like looking at each other. You're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, right, right now, right? Like, so when Kristen and I were, were leaving Chicago, we were so blessed. We had so many people be like, hey, can we get together one more time? Can we get together? And we're like, 
we, we have to pack our house. Like we have to move. Like I'm still work. Like, and so, so there were things where people that I, I really wanted to see that I'm like, Hey, just, you can maybe swing by and say hi, but I, we can't go out to eat again. I'm sorry, I'm stretched too thin. I can't say yes to every single thing. I just have to say no to things. Did you know that God has never been stretched too thin? God has never even been close to being stretched too thin. And when you come to him and you're like, God, I need, he's not like, oh, I don't know if I can manage. I have a lot going on on my plate today. I'm kind of running the world. No, God gives to us out of the abundance and overflow of his heart. And for those of us who are children of God, it's a reminder to us that we can come to God with anything in our hearts, anything in our lives, and God will always be so glad to hear from us, his children. This idea of the abundance is always characterized about this life that's found in Jesus. Later in the gospel of John, it says that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus has come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Not just like life, abundant life. In Ephesians, it says that God is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine. God's like, I am so, like, get, get bigger than your head. Like, you can't even fathom what I can do. I'm so beyond that. One of the regular markers in the Old Testament is God is a God who is abounding in love and faithfulness to his people. One of my favorite passages of scripture says that God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, you will abound in every good work. Friends, whatever you need today, God is not stretched too thin. He's overflowing towards us and whatever we need, grace, Love, patience, comfort. He's overflowing in it, his abundant provision for us. And these, this wine filled to the brim, plentiful beyond what was needed, represents this life in Jesus that is overflowing with love from the Father to us. Verse nine. They've taken, right? The end of verse eight, they took the wine and took it to him. Verse nine, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, I bet they're like, they're like whispering under their breath. Like, I wonder what he's going to think. What do you think? What do you think? Like, they're like, you know, they got the little inside secret, but they, they just want to see the guy's reaction. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first when people, and then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. The fourth characteristic of Jesus's work is this absolute superiority of what Jesus brings. The absolute superiority of what Jesus brings. The master of the feast is like, hold up, why did we start with boxed wine? When we got this over here ready to go, like, what, what are you doing? Why do we start with the cheap stuff when the best thing is, is coming later? He's like, this doesn't make sense. What Jesus is saying in providing this superior wine, a quality that they had never seen or tasted before, is he's saying this, everything that's come before and everything that will come after will fail in comparison to how great I am. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am so far superior to everything else that you could ever have. 
So moving across the country provides you opportunities to sell things and to buy some new things. And for me, one of the things that um, a few months ago when, when we had signed and we knew we were moving to Morgan Hill, for me, one of the necessities, some of you will agree with me, some of you will shake your head. One of the necessities that I needed in my life was I needed to purchase a new bike. I needed to purchase a new bike, right? Chicago is a great city for a lot of things. Cycling is not one of them. Unless you really like stoplights and potholes and traffic, and then they've got you covered, all right? But I have, I've grown up, I love cycling. I was like, oh, Morgan Hill, they have great roads. And I I've, know I've needed a bike for a long time. And so, so I was like, all right, so what do you do when you need to make for a cyclist, the new bike is a very major purchase, right? And so what do you do? You do you just get online and buy the first thing you see or walk? No, what do you do? You start doing your research. You start looking online. You start reading reviews about bikes. You start comparing prices, just like you would do with every major purchase, right? If you're buying a house, you don't just walk up to the first house for sale and offer them, you know, whatever they want. Or you don't just walk onto the car lot and buy the first car. So much. You, you do your research. Why do you do all this work? Because you don't want to have buyer's regret, right? You don't want to be stuck with something and one year, two year, one week, two week later, be like, why did I buy this? Like, we're stuck here with this. We're stuck with like, oh, I wish we had something different. What, why, do, oh, this car, this, oh man, I, I wish we could have had something different. Who you worship or what you worship is a big deal. We all worship something. Don't kid yourself. We all worship something. Some of us, it's Jesus. Some of us, it's success. It's our career. It's our family. We all worship something. And what we worship is a big decision. In fact, I would say it's the biggest decision about our lives. And there are a few guarantees in this life, but I can guarantee you of one thing. You will never have buyer's remorse if you choose to worship Jesus. You will never follow Jesus in one week or two weeks or one year or two years or 10 years and 20 years later, look back like, man, I wish I would have made a different decision because Jesus is so far superior to anything else that the world could offer. So what are you seeking after? What are you worshiping? What are you looking for? For happiness, for meaning, for purpose, because it pales in comparison with the greatness of what Jesus has to give to us. That's why this church for decades and for years and for hopefully decades to come has been all about connecting people into vital relationship with Jesus because there's nothing better than that. There's nothing better than what he can provide for us. So Jesus is saying in this miracle that he is so far superior. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And that should be our response too, is that we would behold the glory of our savior, of Jesus and what he's done for us. And as we behold what he's done, we would respond in belief, in faith, just like how his disciples did. See, the Old Testament prophets often did signs to show that they were speaking the word of God. Jesus does these signs to show that he is God, that he is God, that's who he is. And life and fullness of hope and joy and peace is found only in him. And he is so far superior to whatever has come before and anything that will come after that. So this first sign of Jesus was done at a wedding. 
It may be surprising, but as we've seen, there's so much more going on than just a wedding. But did you know that history itself also ends with a wedding? But at this one, Jesus is not just some random guest who's sneaking in the back and most people have no idea who he is. No, in this one, Jesus is the groom and his bride is the church. It's us. And that's why at the last supper in Matthew chapter 26, it says that Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and we had given thanks. He gave it to them and saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many of the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day, that wedding day, when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And I hope you receive the elements today as you pass in, we get to remember what Jesus has done for us. This wedding that we will be a part of in the future, where the wine will flow richly. But until that day that we are there, we are to remember what Jesus has done by partaking of these elements, the bread and the cup. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.